So these, these are our distinctives, our core values, what we believe, all that kind of stuff. This is kind of like a new members class for everybody, I guess, the, the idea of these six weeks here. So uh, week number two, I think it's good we start on our theological foundation. What do we believe about theology? What, what makes us different? What, what makes community Bible church, community Bible church? Believe it or not, just because you see Bible church on the door of a church doesn't mean they all believe the same thing. Does that shock anybody? No. Okay, this is America. We, we all we shop for churches the way we shop for shoes, right? We want the perfect fit. Okay. So if you look at our website, we have the core and we have our beliefs. And they're, they're both... Core is actually on top. You have to ask Jeremy why that's first. I don't even... Why is core first before our beliefs? I don't know. Well, that ever yeah. yeah, I wondered that myself because the, the the number one core is different than the number one belief. So the number one core we have is actually gospel. If you go to most websites, well, they don't have their core; they have just statement of beliefs. But typically, scripture is first in most churches, right? I mean, that, that would kind of make sense, right? You're, you're a Christian; you use the Bible as the foundation of what you believe. So I think everyone understands why scripture might be first. Anybody want to, here we go, this is the communication part here, and then back and forth. Anybody want to take a stab at why the, the core of the core, the very first thing, is gospel, not scripture? I remember thinking, you know, we used to do that every week. I remember thinking about that, like, why is gospel first and scripture second? Guess. Postulation. What, just because you're quiet, you think I have the answer? I mean, I can guess, right? You should ask the question if you don't know the answer. I do know the answer. But the, pro- the problem with me is I'm the answer to everything. It doesn't mean it's right. Okay. Well, okay. Let me just read what we say. To make the gospel of God's sovereign grace the center of all we do, never assuming it among ourselves or in the community in which we live. You, you guys have probably heard that before. We don't assume the gospel. Because what does that mean? Assume the gospel. Boy. Like tough, tough crowd. Let me get the bullwhip out here. That everyone believes it? Sure. Or everybody's got the right definition. I mean, it terms matter. Definitions matter. And so someone may have a def- different definition for Bible or gospel or any of that. Well, we, we always use the example of the guy that comes in with a suit and he's got the beautiful wife and the perfect kids, and you got the dude that comes in with like the biker jacket and the long hair, and probably hasn't washed in a couple days. And you just assume the guy with the suit and the pretty wife's got it all together, and you kind of assume the dude in the biker jacket probably isn't saved. Where in reality, it could be the exact opposite, right? It could be the story of the two men praying. One's the Pharisee, his head's facing up. Look how great I am. You have the the sinner, the tax collector, whose head is facing down. He's beating his breast, Lord, forgive me, a sinner. And Jesus said, who walked away um, justified? justified, Thank you. Who walked away justified that day? Not the guy with the suit and the pretty wife and the kids that have it all together. So you assume this guy's got it together, this guy doesn't. It could be literally the complete opposite. Because I'm going to talk about a lot of things here. We're going to talk about law and gospel distinction. We're talking about faith, uh, saved by grace, not by works, sola fide, all that kind of stuff. The dude 
who's messed up, who's on his knees begging Christ for forgiveness, is the one who gets it. That's the one who understands the Gospels. It's not about me. It's about what's been done for me. Versus the guy that's, hey, I, God's got to accept me. I got my life together. Right? That's, that's assuming the Gospel. And that's also assuming the Gospel in yourself, right? I'm such a good guy, I got it all figured out. So we don't assume the Gospel. And so that's one of our distinctives. So, so then we go to scripture, right? We're not just opening a random 66 books and hoping that we get some divine inspiration out of just eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Let's pick a page. If we assume that is the gospel of God's sovereign grace, never assume among ourselves or others, then that's how we approach scripture. So if you go to our core beliefs, we have God, obviously, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then scripture is second there as well. So on the belief system, it also makes sense. We talk about God, then we talk about scripture, because who wrote scripture? Ultimately, God, right? Okay. So I really only have four headers here that I could spend all day on. I got gospel, Bible, man, and church. That's it. Now I could spend the next 50 minutes on man, uh, but I'm going to go with Bible first here. So... In any church, why would scripture be first or second on the list of statement of beliefs? It stops me from coming here one day and saying, hey, I had a revelation from God. He told me X. Now, it completely contradicts scripture, but hey, I had a revelation. God told me, right? That's what we start with scripture. And specifically in our statement, we say we believe in the verbal plenary. Plenary means unqualified and absolute. So the verbal plenary God-breathed inspiration of the Bible, both the Old and New Testament, consisting of 66 books inerrant in their original writing. So notice we say in that statement, 66 books. Not every Christian church preaches 66 books. Sometimes there's, what is the number, 72 or 75. So we, it's very important to us to mention 66 books. Because um, if you read Judith or Tobit or Maccabees, you will find that they do contradict the other 66 books. So there's a reason we are very specific about those. Ryan's taking my picture. Promotion, it's exciting. There's something <laughs> full room. It is a full room at 917. <laughs> Church time, as we said. Yes. Well, I got to keep going because seriously, I, I, this is going to take so long. Uh, and also, the last part of that statement is inerrant in the original writings. Okay, did we pick up on that? We said the Bible's inerrant. Everybody believe the Bible's inerrant? I mean, come on. You, yes. Well, you guys really got to work on your class participation because if this is a video, 75% of the church just said they didn't believe the Bible's inerrant. So anybody believe the Bible's inerrant? Yes. Okay, great. All right, awesome. But notice the last part of that sentence. In the original Writings. Why would we put that? Something gets lost in translation. Do any of you have the original writings? No. No. The earliest writings we have are about 300 years old, but the majority of what we have is like 700 years old. So it is possible. Now, if you ever take classes, Doug's class, uh, Doug Searle's class was fantastic about the history of the Bible, the inerrancy of Scripture. But you could have, in one script versus another, 
the word and was a the instead. You know, it could have been improperly translated. So, yes, you can find an error in an old document. It does not mean that what God inspired the original writers to write was errant in any way. And what's great about Doug's class is what we have today is about 99.9% what was originally written anyway. But if someone were to be a skeptic and say, hey, I got this, you know, the in this version and in this version, okay, fine, you got me. It doesn't change that the original writings were the inspired word of God. And that's important because everything we believe comes from the Bible, so the Bible better not be inerrant. And this is not a class on inerrancy. You're going to have to talk to Jeremy if you want to know about why the Bible's inerrant. All right, um, we, the, the next part on the website, and I'm not going to quote the website the whole time, it's just good stuff because this is our theological foundation. To read and preach the Bible as the singular story of God's relentless grace towards unworthy sinners, allowing it to conform and equip God's church. So notice the very important statement there, a singular story. So this is one of our theological distinctives. This is what stems from the redemptive historical method. So we look at the Bible as one story of redemption. If man never fell, if there were no sin, the Bible would be four chapters. Genesis 1, 2, and actually three chapters. Genesis 1, 2, and Revelation, the very last chapter. Maybe the last two, whatever. I mean, it would be a very short book if it weren't for sin. Very, very short book. Not every church, not every Bible church holds to this. So that is one of our distinctives. We do look at the Bible as one story. A, a critique labeled at anyone who uses a redemptive historical method would be, you, you find Jesus in every passage, you find Jesus under every rock. Which I think is funny that Christians are uh, accusing us of finding Jesus in the Bible. Sorry, guilty as charged. The, the point of that is, you can look at the Bible differently. There was one way the Jews were saved. Right? Salvation Redemption, justification happened this way for the Jews in the Old Testament. Right? Salvation, redemption, justification happens this way in the New Testament, after Christ, right? That is a way to read the Bible. We don't read it that way. You can read the Bible from a social justice perspective, right? There, there are all sorts of churches that the main point of the Bible is to redeem people who are displaced Minorities, whatever, I'm not going to get into that. Whatever minority group you fit in, the Bible is there to lift you out of oppression from the oppressor groups, right? That's another way of reading the Bible. There's even a, a method I'm sure most of you have heard of, which I think most of us grew up in, the grammatical historical way of looking at the Bible. If any of you listen to the most popular preachers, on podcasts, you probably are listening to the grammatical historical method. So that's cool and all, but sometimes you can navel gaze in the deepest meaning of a Greek word and be so smart that you miss the overall picture of redemption. So that's the difference while we look at the redemptive historical. That's going to come across again and again and again and again. Uh, one example, uh, I think it was Jeremy was doing Exodus 30, 22, and they talked about the anointing oils. And I missed half the sermon because I started Googling these oils and what they meant and where they came from and what they were. And what? Yeah. 
Could you just clarify what you were saying that 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 it would, we we believe in the what, what's the first one? The first category redemptive historical. Redemptive historical. How that's different from grammatical historical, and certainly to agree that that salvation has always been by grace through faith alone, right uh-huh. from the from from the beginning uh-huh. to the end. But is it the same thing as saying that the Old Testament saint also had Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as the conscious object of his faith? Is it? Are we saying that? Are we? Are we arguing that? Or are we just saying that that saint is is saved on the basis of faith? Right. But the content of that yeah. faith is what had been revealed. Romans to four that, to that to that point. Yeah, Romans four. Abraham believed was credited with righteousness. Yeah. So the Old Testament, though, if you read it, remember we have. <sighs> It's a dangerous term. We have progressive revelation in that we know the name Jesus. Abraham didn't know the name Jesus, right? right. So the Old Testament, if Jesus is here, is always pointing towards the Messiah, towards Jesus, right? I mean, you know, all, everything in Isaiah, especially at the end, right? Emmanuel, Lord with us, all that stuff. And then the New Testament is pointing back to Jesus. So even in, in you know, Genesis 3, you, know, you will stomp his heel right there. Obviously, Adam couldn't interpret from you will stomp on his heel. Oh, Jesus, the Messiah, Emmanuel, born of a virgin, right? No. But even there in Genesis 3, you were starting to point. I don't want to stand where Jesus is standing. We're starting to point to Jesus, right? There will be redemption. And so where this comes, where this is important to make this distinction is I was just about to get here. Um, When you look at the spices, they anoint the lampstand, they anoint the Ark of the Covenant, they anoint Aaron. Read about those spices, frankincense and myrrh. Anybody know where in the New Testament frankincense and myrrh is? Right? Okay. It's not just when they brought gifts to Jesus. When Jesus was anointed, when he was, when he was, when his body was dead, let me put it that way, Nicodemus brought Tons and tons and tons of myrrh. Because they didn't embalm back then. So bodies started to stink after a while. Well, nobody knew Jesus was going to raise again. So they thought the body would stink. Nicodemus brought tons and tons of myrrh. Frankincense was used as the incense. So right after they talk about the oil and the anointing of the, the lampstand, Aaron, the Ark of the Covenant, frankincense is part of the incense. You know, the pleasant aroma to God, right? And then... We're bringing frankincense to Jesus, the, the, the Savior, who will be the pleasant aroma to God the Father when he dies. If you only look at Exodus through grammatical historical, then you're going to do what I did. You're going to miss half the sermon looking at, do you know that one of the, the um, elements of the oil most likely was um, hemp? Or, um, I don't know, yeah, let's just say hemp. Cannabis. Most likely it was it. I only knew that because I spent too long Googling what the heck it was, right? And I missed the bigger point. The bigger point was that even in the tabernacle, before they even had a temple, where they're wandering the wilderness, they were anointing Aaron with the same spices that the Savior would be anointed with three days, two and a half days before his resurrection. So you see the the connection, you see the picture? Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything. So I'm not finding Jesus under a rock. I'm not digging Jesus up unnecessarily in the book of Exodus. But it's fascinating to see that picture of redemption, where 
you had these oils in the tabernacle, and these oils are Jesus, and there's this connection. So that's just one really bad example, perhaps. One of the uh, areas that our church, I think, came, uh, came into this realization was specifically in our children's ministry, where the curriculum we used tended, because they couldn't, they didn't understand the overarching uh, idea of redemption. So a lot of the stories were moralized. Yeah. So you look at Abraham and Lot, and Abraham giving Lot the choice of the land, and they made a story about giving preference up and being a good friend and that sort of thing. It's like, well, no, it's actually that Abraham trusted God's promise. Abraham was looking for a heavenly land. It, you know, there's a whole story of, redem of redemption there to unpack yeah. rather than moralizing every little story. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I think you said it very, very well. I mean, that's that's exactly what I was looking for, and, yeah. and and just to kind of add to it, this idea that you know things meant what they meant, who they were set it to at the time they were set it with what yeah. they knew at the time, right? Yeah. But at the same time, its proper interpretation is found in the the, 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 the complete story, and that the, the, the scripture is building toward a crescendo, yep. a, a, a continuous kind of thread of, of redemption that runs all the way through from beginning to end. So anyway, I love, yeah. I love that. And, and yet, we, we can't, I mean, we can raise a, a straw man against any viewpoint, right? And so, like, I, in my whole life, mostly Southern Baptist, Baptistic, Bible church stuff, I never, ever heard that passage taught from a grammatical, historical, literal, but Christological standpoint. I never heard that passage taught in the way you said like, we always knew that the embalming, like, I heard, like, even Tim LaHaye preach, my first pastor, who's, wow. who's, who's a, I even heard, wow, him, I, I know, yeah, I'm old, but um, <laughs> I, mean, I even heard him preach that, you know, something about the, the, the picture, the beauty of the beginning and the end of Christ in how he was taken care of, so, so that's, um, I think it had value, but it, it, it still well, has to, to, to be, well, yeah, find its find its meaning yeah. in the and, in the and the full story. Right? Yeah, and the fact historical was a Dutch Reformed innovation because there were people who were looking at the like you're saying they were looking at the passages and like heard like Jeremy said they were just moralizing, right. and some Dutch Reformed guy said ah, that's a layer but it's not the layer. So, and then this is all building to when I talk about man because under man I will talk about the fact that we are a Reformed church, and so this is a building block. Reform foundation, that's to say. So part of this comes from a reform perspective. Uh, what else do I have in the Bible? Oh, the last part, the biggest one. Huh. Uh, we make a law-gospel distinction. Anybody heard that before? Law-gospel distinction? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Boy, just because I'm standing doesn't mean I have the best answer. I have an answer. It's, it's a big one. So no one it is a big wrong. one. Yeah. <laughs> So it sounds like you understand it. I mean, no. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I can give a stab at it. But I, oh, take a stab. Don't yeah. judge. Don't Anybody judge. besides me. Jeez, seriously. <laughs> safe space. Safe space. Um, uh, the way I would understand it, I guess, I don't know. I feel very on the spot. Um, law. Yeah, I'll sit down. Law, okay. <laughs> law uh, defines a time that... that um, where we had to follow certain things, or you still do. You have to you have to be perfect under the law in order to yeah. obtain um, uh, perfection and um, union with Christ. 
produced, and you still have to follow that. Um, so there were certain laws in place in order to achieve that end objective, to be perfect. We as humans cannot, and so the gospel was introduced in, in order to provide a way for us to be perfect through Christ. Um, and so that, that gospel distinction comes in where we are perfect through Christ, not by the law. Yeah, it's very good. And and that's an important, again, the title of today is Our Theological Foundation. So law, gospel, distinction is part of our theological foundation. It's very important. Believe it or not, there are Christian churches in Nashville that teach that you do have to be sinless, or at least you can obtain sinless perfection if you try hard enough. When uh, long ago... When Ryan was in the youth group, we went to the Hickory Hollow Mall, which doesn't exist anymore, to evangelize people. And I remember sitting with a guy who, who went to a church of Christ and him vehemently arguing that, yes, Jesus died on the cross and rose again, but you still have to, and he couldn't define it. That's why it became an argument, of attain some level of sinlessness, not perfection. He wasn't t- saying perfection, but, you know, and... And again, it was his southern interpretation. So I don't drink and chew and hang out with girls that do, right? <laughs> well, you know, if, if you're in a coal mining town, you may not find a girl who doesn't chew. So you're, you're, you're a, your definition of sinlessness is, is based on where you're from, right? Uh, you know, there, believe it or not, there are Christians that watch Game of Thrones. I don't. <laughs> I'm serious, but but the the idea that you have to have some level of of putting off the world becomes based on your your belief of what that putting off is. Is, is it rock and roll? Is it uh, men having long hair, women having short hair? Is it women wearing pants or dresses? Is it watching R-rated movies? Right? I mean, is it going one mile an hour over the speed limit? You, you better check yourself. You may not be saved because if you're a Christian, you're not going to go one mile an hour over the speed limit. You, you see the point where it becomes your personal definition of what a Christian should be if it's based on your works. So it's either based on Christ's works or it's not. But it doesn't erase the fact that there is a standard of perfection. But a standard of perfection is so large you can never obtain it, which is why we have Christ, who did... T- Two things, he didn't just not sin, I mean, he didn't sin, but that's only half the equation. He fulfilled the law. There's so many different parts of it is finished, so that could be a whole other class. It is finished, so a whole sermon on three words. One of those, it is finished, is the law. The commandment of God to fulfill the law, to obtain perfection to be welcome into his arms as a child of God was finished on the cross. Christ obtained that on your behalf. So why we say a law gospel distinction is you can use the law as a hammer to beat people over the head to submit. Or you can use the gospel as a way of taking that burden off. What is another thing we say here? Uh, rest for weary, sin- weary, sin- weary sinners. Find a place, we say it all the time, find a place of rest. That's what Christ said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Because you either have to obtain the full perfection of the law, or you have to have faith in Christ. That's light compared to the weight of the law. There's a slight distinction in that, is that you can use the law properly, Mm -hmm. 
And so you can use the law improperly to beat people over the head with it and make them submit. Or you can use the law properly, which is to show them that they cannot do what is necessary, which then leads them to the foot of the cross. I love, when I'm feeling bad, I feel bad a lot, uh, Romans 8.1, there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So remember that. You can feel convicted about sin, and, and, and as a believer, member, you have the ability to not sin, remember? Uh, as an unbeliever, you don't have the ability not to sin. Right? You, you have to sin. So you have the blessing and the benefit and the privilege as a believer to not sin. So that's okay to feel like, oh, yeah, I, I want to push that aside and, and I want to run towards Christ. But if you feel that overwhelming condemnation, that's not God. That's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not take a person who is covered by the blood of Christ and condemn you. That's not the Holy Spirit. Well, and that's the important part as we read Scripture, just read the apostles' writings. There's law and gospel in their writings. And it's important to distinguish between the two. So when it says, flee sexual immorality, that's law. And as a believer, we can delight in that law and say, oh, because of what Christ has done, I can delight in fleeing from sexual immorality. But we need to understand that that is law. It's good for us. Yeah. We delight in it. But that is not what saves us. Correct. What saves us is the finished work of Christ. Yeah, the other thing that comforts me is when God looks at me, he doesn't see me. <laughs> he sees his son. Sorry, whatever. Oh, no, it's just such a good point. Even David said, I mean, David talks beautifully about the, how the law of the Lord is sweet. And yet, you know, he knew, obviously, <laughs> that he did not hit that point. And yet, that knowing what God loves and cherishes is good. Mm -hmm. Oh, and, then, and especially because it's a miracle. And then he still accepts me because I don't get that so often. Well, take a non-believer who, for whatever reason, doesn't ever go towards drugs or alcohol or adultery. Marries someone young and is faithful for the rest of their life. On earth, not, not in heaven, <laughs> they won't be in heaven. On earth, will they have a better life? Will their life be good? Yeah. Right. So the law on its own can't say. Mm -hmm. now, I'm, I'm creating a hypothetical person here, but I know several unbelievers who are quote-unquote good people. Uh, one of my bosses is an atheist, and he's a good and faithful husband. And he married his college sweetheart, and they are very much in love, and he's a good man to her. God doesn't look at that and say, okay, you're forgiven of your sins because you're a good husband, right? But his life is blessed because he's in a good, faith relationship with his wife. So the law is sweet. The law is good. It just doesn't say it. Okay, sorry. We are way behind. Man, here, here, here it is. Total depravity. That's a major theological foundation. When we look at man and women too. Sorry, you're not off the hook. We are totally depraved as human beings. So that is reform language. That's Calvinistic and it's reform. So what's the difference? You can I don't think you can be reformed and not be Calvinistic. You can be Calvinistic and not reformed. Mm. Who wants to take a stab at that one? No? <laughs> okay, so let's just go through. This is not a class on Calvinism. I'm not even like preaching Calvinism, but the tulip is just the, the basic, most basic way I can think of describing Calvinism. I'm not gonna can't say it's positive. I'm not going to really describe any of these, but TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. So that's Calvinism. 
We also hold to the five solas. So only this, right? Now, isn't that a contradiction in term? There's five onlys, five solas. How is that possible? Did you know that there were actually originally only three? The first three, it was the three solas and two were added later. I didn't know that. I found that out last night. Okay. Sola Scriptura, so scripture alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone. Sola Christus, through Christ alone. And then Soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. So notice in this one, what is first? Again, scripture. Because it's from scripture alone that we understand that it's through faith alone and grace alone. And then later on, I think this may be bloody obvious. We didn't need to say this. We added it later. Through Christ alone, right? Faith, grace alone, faith alone, through who? Well, through Christ. And why? So that we can have a better life? So you can have your best life now? Is that why? Well, no. You got the fifth one, for the glory of God alone. So those are all things we hold to. So now that you've heard those, I, I just want you to memorize. That's ten things you... So you either memorize them or you didn't. That's fine. Here's my biggest quote I'm going to read now. See how many of those you can pick up in this one quote. Ready? We believe that man was created in the image and likeness of God, but then in Adam's sin, the race fell, inherited a sin nature, and became alienated from God, and that man is totally depraved, in the sense that his whole being is affected and cursed by sin, so that he cannot, in this state, please God. We believe that in his unrighteousness, in an absolute sense, and can only accomplish relative good. We believe that he is lost and of himself utterly unable to remedy his lost condition. We believe that salvation is the gift of God brought to man by grace. Okay, there it is. There's another one. And that is, here's the next one, justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And is thus given a new position of righteousness and holy standing before God, in which he becomes a son of God by spiritual rebirth, a new creation in Christ. What's the remember P from two up here? We believe that all the redeemed, once saved, are kept by God's power and are thus secure in Christ forever. So, perseverance of the saints. We believe it is the privilege of believers. So, here you're talking about law, gospel, distinction. Uh, we didn't use the word yet, but sanctification is kind of what we're talking about. We believe, I lost it. Okay, here. The privilege of believers to rejoice in the assurance of their salvation through the testimony of God's word, which, however, clearly forbids the use of Christian liberty as an occasion to the flesh. So this is a condition on man. We have a whole other thing on sanctification and our saving beliefs. But see, we're, we're building on it there. So you saw all sorts of, you saw a couple solas in there. You saw the P from Tulip in there. And we end with, because you can misinterpret that, it is not an occasion to use Christian liberty as, sorry, use Christian liberty as an occasion to the flesh. Because we've also been accused of that. Well, if you believe all this stuff, there's nothing for you to do, so you can just go on and do whatever you want to do. Right. And so we do have... Um... Okay, i got a little bit of time now, but we're doing better. There is justification. I know before, the Old Testament is on this side, this is before. So there's justification, there's sanctification. Justification is a one-time event in which you are declared righteous. What makes any Protestant church different from a Catholic church is that we don't mix justification and sanctification together. But it can certainly be said that there are some Protestant churches who are mixing those up as well. There are, uh, there's the R. 
same names. There's there's final justification, which is a weird concept that you're justified, but oh, you got to justify yourself before God someday. Uh, there's lordship salvation. You can make, you can become saved, and then make Jesus the Lord of your life later in life. Like two different things. Um, so even in Protestantism, we can mix up justification and sanctification. So uh, I do want to read this here. Following the, this is on our, our website. Following the regeneration of the sinner, there does occur an inevitable, varying, very important, and lifelong renovation of the inner man, and I love this, through thought, will, affection, and appetite. Sanctification can never be understood as logically proceeding, simultaneously occurring, or meritoriously resulting in the justification of the sinner. Justification is a finished act, while sanctification is an ongoing process, and each are accomplished by faith. Even there is a somewhat controversial statement. Each are accomplished by faith. There is also a belief that your faith justifies you, your works sanctify you. There's a, you know, there's a, you're walking alongside Jesus kind of, kind of idea. Um, but, but the main point is, not, not to get too far in the weeds, what really splits any Protestant church from the Catholic Church is that you are justified. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Now, now we have the benefit and the, the beauty of obeying and following the law. But notice the word meritorious in there. You, most Protestants would say, oh yeah, you're not earning your salvation. No, you, you can't justify yourself before God. There's plenty of Protestants, though, that would say, oh, God's angry at you. Uh, what's the other thing I heard so much growing up in a Baptist church? Oh, you've um, you've separated your relationship, right? Your relationship with God is severed, right? And so you need to work, right? Stop doing what you're doing or start. You missed youth group three weeks in a row, Tyler. Your relationship with God is severed. You need to rebuild, right? I, I heard this from youth pastor. You need to rebuild your relationship with the Lord and show up for youth pastor. You naughty, naughty boy. Right? We all sin. Anybody here want to claim to be sinless? Thank you. Nobody raise your hand. Does God love you less the minute after you sin? My youth pastor never said that, but that's pretty much what I got from him. Not Smed. We're not talking about Smed here. That's when I was a kid. All right. That's pretty much what we got was, yeah, God is angry with you. That relationship is broken. Like, you can't lose your salvation because we're, here's a great, here's a great example. We're, we're, we're Calvinistic, right? Presbyterian of the Saints. Can't lose your salvation, but you can wreck your relationship with God, and God is mad at you, and you've got to do better. Right? That, that's how I was brought up. That's not reformed, but it's still Calvinistic. Backsliding. Yes. That old word backsliding. Yes, you're backsliding. And did you rededicate your life? Oh, five times. Seriously, five times. I remember walking the aisle, hoping that everyone understood I wasn't trying to get saved. Like, you know, this guy next to me is trying to get saved. I'm already saved. I'm just rededicating. So my walk down the aisle is different. So we've all rededicated our lives. We've all backslidden because we're sinners. And we continually sin. I'm a simultaneous saint and I'm a simultaneous sinner. So all of these things, and we're talking about a synergistic relationship, and I'm using that word on purpose, to one God. Can you explain, Mr. Spade, what the role of man is 
difference in salvation? Nothing. It's actually nothing because even faith is a gift of God. But uh, I suppose from a human perspective, it's just to be thankful and just be fall on your knees. And first of all, if you truly are realizing this for the very first time, you're crying out for mercy, begging for forgiveness. Every other time you're on your knees thanking the Lord for what he's done on your behalf. So isn't crying out to the Lord begging for mercy an act? Yeah, it is, yeah. It's not a work, though. Which came first? It's an act. Okay, so it's not a work? No. It's an act. Explain why it's not. Um, well, i got to get to the very end here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because in the end... We're going to talk about the fact that we're covenantal. And there was, I hate to say was, God is outside of time. Time, the whole concept of, of time, try, try watching Star Trek and understand that you human beings don't understand time. So the Bible's way worse than that as far as trying to understand the concept of time. God doesn't exist at the time. But nevertheless, there was a time when the covenant of a redemption was made. So uh, this is... When the Holy Trinity, before time immortal, committed that the Son would die to redeem the people that weren't even created yet. That's what's known as the covenant of redemption. Now, see, I had to skip ahead to answer your question, Mr. Rivera. So, if that's the case, then even the faith you have is still a gift of God. And so getting on your knees and begging for forgiveness is a good thing, and you all should do it. But that's an act, not a work. So can I choose God? No. Like in the law. Well, that's the I in Tulip. It's irresistible grace. Exactly. So you yes. can choose to be brought to life, but when you're brought to life, man, there's only one response, which is worship. So you yeah. do make a choice because it was given to you. Right. And yeah. that, that may seem weird. It's like a matrix thing. It is, but, yeah. But, but that's the biblical description. Yeah. You're brought to life, and your response is, <gasps> Yes. Sorry, Ron. Well, no, this, someone next to me is not going to speak out of voice. Sheldon, come on, it's okay. Raise your hand. <laughs> to work and act, it's more of a response, which is what Rod was saying. It's like if you get revived, you breathe in as a response. Yeah. It's not, it's not even. our feeble attempt to try and explain something physical or some material sort of something, but it's a response to something. Well, Erica, thank you, Erica, by the way. And Rod both gave me that picture of a corpse taking its first breath. Right? Imagine Lazarus dead in the tomb. Right? Imagine the, you're on the slab, you're covered in all the anointing oils because you stink, and you go, <gasps> right? Is your first response going to be, whoo! Good thing I did a good job yesterday. I earned that. <laughs> so my, one of my favorite things about the Bible is talking about that and thinking about how, how did I become a Christian? How What was that first reaction? I did something. I, I pulled out, right? But the reality is the power that saved me was the same exact power that raised Christ from the dead. Yeah. How do you resist that? 
It's irresistible. It's impossible to resist. You will react because God put it in you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's why that Lazarus, that's a really good point. Like, what what did Lazarus's ears do when Jesus said, come forth? He had dead ears. He didn't hear anything. He was already brought to life to hear, you know? Yeah. It was dumb. Yeah, it's a crazy picture. Obviously, it's there for a reason, right? Because not too long later, our Savior was going to die. And uh, raise again. Let me read the last sentence. He's the one person who raised from the dead and said, I I earned that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yes. I did a good job yesterday. Yeah. He's the only one. Uh, I just want to read the last sentence of sanctification, and we'll move on. On the contrary, basically everything we're talking about, right? On the contrary, sanctification naturally flows from justification and those good works that, I love this, inevitably accompany it, right? If you're a believer, good works will inevitably come are the grateful response of the redeemed to the grace of God. Will you be perfect? No. But, uh, oh, come on, help me out here, Damien. Uh, simultaneous, it, something Simul- epicator. Simul- Eustace, Eustace, thank you. Eustace epicator. Simultaneously sinner and saint. Where an unbeliever is just a sinner. If you are... And also, well, this is not really part of our distinctive, but one thing that makes Protestant different from the Catholic is that everyone is a saint under Protestantism, right? If you're a believer, you're a saint. You're simultaneously a saint and a sinner. Although we would all anoint and elect Damien once he dies to be a saint, we don't have to do that because, you know. The Catholic Church would not. <laughs> I'm kidding. All right. Uh, so I, my thing on church is short. The last thing I had under man, by the way, we're still, I told you man would take forever. We're still under man here. Because it all flows from that one phrase, totally depraved, right? So the T and Tulip. All of this flows the way we're looking at Scripture from the fact that we believe man is incapable of saving himself. We are totally depraved. We are covenantal in that we see a covenant of works, which Beth already explained, right? Do good, get good. If you obey perfectly, you'll be saved. So theoretically... If Adam and Eve had never sinned, again, the Bible would be four chapters, right? That's it. God created, and they went into paradise. The end. That was a short book. So that, that's the covenant of grace. And it still exists to this day. Of works. Works, sorry, works, sorry. sorry. Yeah. That's the covenant of works. still exists. But you can't obtain it. You can't meet the covenant of works, which is why we have the covenant of grace. Now, there's actually three covenants, broadly speaking. It's not a class on, on reform theology, but... Coming of grace, coming of works, coming of redemption. So this is a great, my last quote here from Westminster Seminary. They actually blend the covenant of grace and redemption into one quote, which is just, I love it. And if you want to know more, go to their website. The covenant of grace is the historical outworking of an eternal covenant of redemption. See that? They're both there. In quotes, they put the so-called covenant before the covenant. So that's the covenant of redemption. The covenant before the covenant. So the covenant of grace in which the members of the Holy Trinity decreed that Jesus was to be the Redeemer of those whom the Father had chosen in him. So notice the whole Trinity is working together here. And that Jesus would do this on behalf of and in the place of all those sinners chosen from before the foundation of the world. So we see those covenants in the Bible. We're also, last point here, confessional, and I'm not going to talk about that because Dave has an entire class on that. So, yes, we are confessional, but stay tuned in two weeks. So it's two weeks, right? Two weeks. All right, everybody come back here in two weeks so you can fill out my last bullet point there under man. All right. 
And then lastly, I just want to mention church. We say we view the church as a mission organization and not a safe haven from the culture. That's part of our core. In my Baptistic upbringing, we had a Christian moat, right? And we've walked the world out. And on our island, we had Christian music. We even had Christian candy. We had testaments. <laughs> we all had the only proper interpretation of the Bible, and that was the MacArthur Study Bible. And that was it, right? And we had Christian festivals, and we hung out with Christian friends, and we even had our Woodstock, which was called Jesus Northwest. So Jesus Northwest, all the Christian bands, which ironically were from Nashville, came to uh, Vancouver, Washington, and we had Woodstock. It was just Christian Woodstock. Hey, man. So we had our, our Christian island surrounded by our Christian moat to keep the world out, to keep us safe and protected. The irony of that, of course, was at Jesus Northwest. You know how much pot I smelled in the tents? Oh, smell. That's what you said. <laughs> <laughs> smell. Yeah. You didn't say inhale. I didn't say I, I never inhaled. Uh, so the point is, you can't keep the world out. And nor should you, right? We're a mission organization, not a safe haven from the culture. The danger of that is that leads up to a lot of interpretation. You might have people in this congregation that watch Game of Thrones. So, you might have people with dreadlocks come to church. <laughs> in our building. It's possible. However unlikely. Right? <laughs> so, it leads to different points of view. right? But we are all united as believers that see ourselves as a mission organization. Church starts Monday, right? Any other thoughts about that? You know, the, the difference, I guess, in, in that, in our view of church versus the way I grew up, I guess the way Rod grew up, you know. Some of it just goes back to, we've talked about it in sanctification, the gospel is there, like growing up, I think we probably had similar uh, situations. It, it almost felt like to be part of the gospel community, you need to conform to us, and then we'll let you in. Yeah, yeah. And that's a lot. Of, a lot of times, how we think of our own lives, as you said. Oh, I sin. God is now against me. I need to work myself back into His good favor. Whereas, really, we're working from the gospel. Like, no, we are all unworthy sinners. None of us do deserve God's favor upon us. And it's it's only by the Spirit's work through the law of God, that he can even begin to restore me to his, uh, to enjoy the full image that he created me to, to enjoy. Uh, but we, so, so the old, that, the, my old way of thinking was to keep the world at arm's length, because that's evil. And if they want to clean their lives up, then I'll let them in. Yeah. See how it's so hard to figure out what to start with? You start with gospel, you start with the Bible, you start with the fact that man is totally depraved. Like, what, what do you begin with, right? So, it's hard to say what's number one. Uh, but you know, as far as we're wrapping up here, yeah, you know, uh, our theological foundation. We're a Bible church, so the Bible is where we get everything. You don't get to come here and tell me that I found some golden tablets under a rock. I don't care. Whatever. You went into a cave. I love how the story of Mormonism and uh, Islam is the same story, right? They both go away in the woods. Muhammad went to a cave. 
Joseph Smith went to a tree, and they come out with a new Bible. Right? So that's why we start with Scripture. But the view of man is very important because, I mean, look, we spent almost the entire time on one key phrase, total depravity. It, it affects everything we look at and the way we look at it. And, of course, we take all that. Because we're a bunch of totally depraved sinners, how are we going to run church? <laughs> As a mission organization, not a safe haven culture. Okay, I'm done. Anyone want to close this for You guys are doing great volunteering in the second half. Don't stop now. All right. Father, thank you so much uh, just for the, the truth of your word. I thank you that um, we, along with many other good churches uh, around us, do lean on your word. Know it is uh, your uh, revealed word to us that we can trust in. We can trust in your promises. We can trust in uh, the the favor that you have poured out upon us through Christ. Uh, I pray, Father, just that you would help us specifically as as we enjoy these truths, um, that they would not be uh, simply uh, something that we enjoy for the sake of knowing, uh, but that we enjoy because they are the the manifest glory uh, of, of you. We can enjoy you. Uh, we can glorify you. Uh, help us to shape us, to shape who we are, uh, to shape how we interact with the world around us and how we interact with one another. We thank you for uh, your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.